Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Stan Bush. Hi, this is Stephanie Calvert. This is John Payne. This is Jack Hughes. Hey, everybody. This is Prescott Niles. Hi, I'm Jerry Stevens. Hello, I'm Kofi Baker. This is not a test. This is Play That Rock and Roll. I'm your host, Joe Kay, and today our guest is Xavier Russell. Xavier is a rock journalist who worked for Kerrang! magazine back in its heyday of the 80s and 90s. If you didn't know, Kerrang! and other rock mags like it, uh, Circus, Cream, Sounds, uh, magazines like that, were one of the best ways for fans to get information about the bands they love and also to become introduced to new bands that they weren't previously familiar with. Before the internet, these rock mags were huge for fans who wanted to get access to information about their favorite bands and also for fans who wanted to learn about other bands who were just starting to break through. I originally wanted to have Xavier on the podcast because I am currently working on a podcast retrospective about the band Molly Hatchet. And while doing research, uh, I happened to find that Xavier wrote a lot of articles about Molly Hatchet back in his time at Kerrang! There's a great Twitter account, which I'll link in the description, that all it does is post scans of old Kerrang! articles. And when I would look through these articles for pretty much anything related to Molly Hatchet, I found that all of those articles and interviews and album reviews were basically written by the same guy, Xavier. So I figured he would be the perfect guest expert for my Molly Hatchet retrospective. Now, Xavier is not on social media, so it took me a little while to get in touch with him. But in that time, I realized that he probably has a lot of great stories and information beyond just Molly Hatchet. I figured he would have great stories about other bands that he was around back in the day, or I figured we could at least have a conversation about what it was like working for a publication like Kerrang! back in those days. Rock journalism is something that's really important to me. I have a lot of admiration for that work. Um, if you remember, I talked to Joe Matera last year uh, about that very topic. And it's something that I want to highlight on this channel uh, as much as I can because I think, especially print journalism, is critical to the preservation of classic rock history. Again, pre-internet, magazines would have been one of the best ways to learn about your favorite bands. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Xavier's time at Kerrang! Magazine and also some of his great stories about being around other bands like, say, this one, Metallica. Yeah, uh, this is a book called Metallica, a Visual Documentary, which Xavier co-wrote back in the 90s. Now, if you're a Metallica fan, you definitely want to listen to this interview because uh, Xavier was around that band in their very early days, and he was a a big help to their career in those early days. And that's not just me saying this or just him saying this. That's Metallica saying this. When Metallica was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they hosted a party in Cleveland that was meant to honor and express appreciation to the various people in the music industry who helped their career uh, all along the way. And Xavier was invited to that. So if you're a fan of the early days of Metallica, I think you're really going to enjoy the stuff we talk about here. Oh, and how about this? Xavier saw Bon Scott the night before he passed away. That freaking blew my mind when he just casually mentioned that in the conversation. Bon's last days is a topic that I find really interesting, and we've covered on this channel before. So if, uh, yeah, you're an ACDC fan, 
yeah, you'll probably want to hear what he has to say about that as well. And, of course, you know, we cover some other great stories of his, some really funny stories, I should add, uh, about Journey, Brian Adams. He tells us about some of the bands he's really into today. And, of course, we talk about what it was like working at Kerrang! And he also shares his memories about another rock journalist, a guy named Malcolm Dome, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago. I've been meaning to read this book for a while now. This is uh, Malcolm's book, uh, which is a collection of all his articles from Kerrang! about ACDC uh, from back in the day. Uh, Malcolm was a friend of Xavier, and uh, Xavier was uh, kind enough to talk about uh, his friendship with Malcolm and, you know, again, share his memories about this guy who, uh, like Xavier, was a very influential rock journalist who wrote tons of articles for Kerrang! and uh, was very well regarded in the music industry. Now, the one thing that we talked about that's not going to be in this interview is Molly Hatchett. I've cut out that part of the conversation because I am going to use that audio uh, as part of my Molly Hatchett uh, podcast retrospective that will be uh, posted uh, early next year. So it won't be very long before you can hear uh, the rest of that. So this interview is basically everything we've talked about besides Molly Hatchet. Now Xavier doesn't have any social media or anything to promote, so I don't really have anything to plug here. I guess you can find this book. You can uh, find it on eBay and it's not very expensive. I will just say thank you to Xavier once again uh, for his time. He was very generous with his time. We talked for almost like two hours. So I really appreciate that. And of course, his candor and humor. There are some very funny stories in this conversation. I think you're going to enjoy that. So I just appreciate the conversation as a whole. This is one of the episodes I am most proud of that we've done this year. Uh, it was a lot of fun talking to Xavier. So um, hopefully we'll have him back sometime in the future. And of course, I have to say thank you to his agent, Amanda, for putting us in touch. Uh, if she didn't respond to my email, I don't know if this would have come together. <laughs> so I'd like to say thank you to her. It was actually kind of funny. Um, Xavier works in the film industry as an editor, and he's working on a project in Scotland. So to actually make contact, I had to call him. And I've never dialed out of the United States before. I didn't know about, like, exit codes on phones and or, or countries' entry codes and... Uh, UK phone numbers, uh, cell numbers, uh, don't necessarily have seven digits like we do. So it took a little bit of trial and error just to get uh, a phone call through to him. But we did connect. We had a nice conversation. And uh, he was uh, very cool about the whole thing, interested in coming on. And I think we had a great conversation. So a little bit of legwork getting him on the show, but it was absolutely worth it because it was a lot of fun talking to him. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Uh, so without further ado, here is my conversation with rock journalist Xavier Russell. We were talking just a little bit earlier, and you mentioned before you worked at Kerrang!, you worked at a magazine called, called Sounds. Could, uh, yeah. Was that your first job as a writer in the music industry? Yeah, well, I was, well, my main job is still film editing, and I right. and I just grew, I grew up loving rock, so I grew up, you know, in the Nazareth, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, Atomic Rooster, Led Zeppelin era, and then Sounds was like the weekly magazine. It was like a newspaper, really, and it came out weekly, and I I started reading it in about seventy six, seventy five around that era and then Jeff Barton was the heavy metal writer on sounds who also he started Kerrang and I just used to phone him up saying why have you reviewed this album there's a new blowers to cult album there's a new you know there's a new uh, REO speed and he said well you seem to know so much about it do you want to have a go I said well I haven't even got a typewriter he said doesn't matter write it out freehand and bring it in so I said okay so I just picked the most obscure American albums I could find in an import bin and took, you know, bands like Legs Diamond, who I fucking loved, um, and took them into him. And he said, oh, I like these. They're quite funny, humorous. Do a little column. So I started doing a little import column for rock albums, uh, you know, like heavy rock. And at that time, punk was coming out, which I got a bit bored with. And um, so I sort of turned to America. So I was getting into bands like Aerosmith, Boston, Kiss, all those sort of bands. And then... You know, that that carried on and carried on. And then suddenly Jeff phoned up one day, so well, we're starting up this new magazine called Kerrang! 
And it's just like a trial thing. I'm going to put ACDC on the cover and see how it goes. And it just flew out the door. Absolutely. It was only designed as a one-off to see how it would actually do. And, of course, heavy rock was always, you know, it's the permanent wave, really. So, anyway, I carried on staying with sounds for a bit. And then after a while, I was getting less work on sounds because Jeff was doing more on Kerrang. And then I said, well, what about me coming to Kerrang? He said, well, I'll get you on a free transfer, but you'll have to write one review under a pseudonym, see what they think. <laughs> so I wrote one out. I did, I did it. It's weird. I did a Santana album. I forget which one it was under the name ZF Gore because my name's oh. spelt with an X, but it's pronounced with a Z. Yeah. So I think mean, Gore, I like gory movies. So I just thought it just looked good in print. And they went, okay, yeah, 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 you've passed. You can start doing it. And then... In 1982, I went out. You could used to be able to fly to America really cheaply on Pan Am or TWA. You could fly on standby for about $80 or something from England. Yeah, it was dirt cheap. And then, of course, I used to fly out there all the time. And then customs officers would look and say, well, when are you going back? I said, well, I always had to have a proof of letter from my film editing career to prove that I was going back. And then one towards the end of 82, I was going out to California because I had a friend I could just crash with. And then he said, "Oh, go up to go up to this go up to this record shop on Polk Street, this heavy metal store." So I get I get up there, and um, hang on, I've got to get my other bit. Yeah, and there's it's called there was a store called the Record Vault on Polk Street, which was run by this guy called where well, he, he worked in there called Ron Quintana, who started this a magazine called Metal Mania, and it was him that gave Lars Ulrich the title for Metallica because he was going to call that that's what he was going to call his magazine, and then oh, Lars oh. said, "No, no, no." And then Lars said, no, no, call it call it Metal Mania. So this is the story they told me. Anyway, so I walk in the store, and they hadn't met me. They didn't, and they said, who are you? I said, oh, I'm Xavier. No, I'm not the Kerrang guy. And they're sort of like, <laughs> sort of bowing. And they said, have you heard of Metallica? I said, I've heard of them, but I think they're from L.A. He said, yeah, they are, but they, they're thinking of moving up here. And they gave me a tape and a cassette. And it, and I looked at it, and it said, turn bass down on amp. And it was all in... <laughs> It was all in Lars's writing. So I put it in my pocket and forgot about it. And anyway, a couple of days later, because I'd actually gone out there to do um, Motley Crue, who were playing at the Concord Pavilion on on um, on uh, Halloween uh, with uh, Y&T when, when oh. the Tiger album came out. So you had Y&T topping, Motley Crue under them, who were just beginning to break, and Randy Hansen, who was a bit like sort of Hendrixy, black guitarist, really good. But he was sort of local Bay Area guitarist. And so, you know, I went and did the Motley Crue thing, and that was fine, and they were mad, and it was okay. And then I suddenly get a call from this Ron Quintana. I said, oh, Metallica are one. Lars wants to know if you want to go and see him. I said, where are they playing? He said, oh, we're playing this um, place called the Old Wardorf, which is in downtown San Francisco. And you know where the Pyramid Building is in downtown San it, There's a club that was right in the financial district. I don't know if it's still there. Okay. And on the poster, it said um, Lars Rocket were headlining, and it said from Los Angeles, Metallica. <laughs> and um, it was, and of course, when I get there, Lars is waiting to talk to me because that Sylvie Simmons, who's another Kerrang writer who was living in LA, had obviously told him about me. And he had his Venom, they had Venom and Saxon t shirts on, and back then they had black spandex trousers and bullet belts. And in one corner was Dave Mustaine, and just wouldn't talk to anyone because <laughs> he was still in the band then. And then the bass player was Ron McGovney, who's the original one. I think he's oh, I think okay, he's an okay. estate he's an estate agent. But in the audience, so I started chatting to was Cliff Burton, who was still in a band called Trauma. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. So anyway, they came on and played like I'd never seen anyone play that fast, and the beer was going everywhere. And someone said, "How do you describe their music?" I said, "Well, I suppose it's a bit like Ted Nugent on speed," <laughs> <laughs> which it sort of was. Yeah. But what I loved about what I loved about them was this originality. They felt very new, very fresh, and because they were all into the European bands like Accept, Saxon, Scorpion, I mean, you know, all the German bands as well. And Lars is Danish, obviously, so he spent a lot of time in London and Europe. So when he went over there, he took his knowledge of all that European metal and sort of morphed it into Metallica. And that's what. And, and then they. And then of course. The minute they got to San Francisco, they could say, well, there's a different scene up here. It's not because when they were in L.A., they, it's all the glam bands were coming through and nobody wanted to see Metallica. Right. But in San Francisco, it was different. You had 
you had, you know, Exodus and bands like that and Testament, they were all coming through. So there was a big thrash scene up there. So that's why they relocated up there. Anyway, so I did this interview in Kerrang, which had M-U-Y-A, which was Metal Up Your Ass, which was one of their T-shirts. <laughs> and then they, that sort of helped get them going. And then I sort of hooked them up with Music for Nations, which is a big London label. They put their album out. And then I finally, there's a famous story where Peter Mensch, who at the time was managing ACDC and, and Def Leppard, phoned me out and said, what about this band Metallica you keep on about? I said, do you think they're going to be big? I said, I reckon in 10 years' time, this is 82, right? I said, they'll probably be one of the biggest bands in the planet. And, of course, wow. the Black Album comes out. And um, he said, so how do I get hold of him? He said, I said, well, that's the difficult part because you can't. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, they've got this rehearsal studio over on the other side of the bay in Oakland near Berkeley. But you can't get through to them because they never pick up the phone because they're rehearsing all the time. He said, well, is, there must be a way. I said, well, I know Kirk. I have a number for Kirk Hammett's mother. I can phone her up. So I did. And then she said, well, they won't call. I said, well, get. I said, this is urgent. This is a bad. This is a manager who's fucking big time. She said, OK, well, I'll get Kirk's brother to go round on his skateboard, round to the studios and get them to phone you. So that night I get a, I get a, you know, when you get those weird reverse charge calls. Yeah. I said, this American voice said, yeah, we got a reverse charge call from a cool box in California. Would you take the charge? I said, only if I can mail it back from them later. <laughs> anyway, I said, so put them through. And I said, look, Peter Mensch wants to manage you. I went, they went, oh, fucking hell. I said, well, give me the number of the cool box you're in, and then I'll phone him and he'll phone you back. So, so anyway, this is, this is where it gets interesting. So I give Peter Mensch the number. He then tries to phone them, and it's engaged. <laughs> 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 so I hang up. He hangs up, phones me back, says, Black and engaged. You give me the right number. I said, I repeated it back to him. I said, Look, let me let. And then two seconds later, Lars phones me back and says, Oh, I'm sorry, someone needed to use the phone. I said, Well, get James Hetfield to stand in front of the box and so no one can get in. <laughs> this time, Mintz got through and the rest is history. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's amazing. And, yeah, it's a good story. And then the next time they came over was just when they were doing the Ride of the Lightning album. Okay. And they were on Music for Nations by then. And they were in Shepherd's Bush, which is a part of London's rehearsal studio. And they said, oh, they want to play some new stuff. And this is the first time I saw Cliff Burton. And okay. they played me for and they played me the whole of Ride the Lightning virtually. So I was hearing For Whom the Bell Tolls, all those songs for the first time. I said, this is fucking brilliant. And then they said, well, we're playing the Ardshock Festival, which was um, February 84, which is in Holland. And they were supporting Venom on the Seven Dates of Hell tour. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was just standing on the side of the stage and they just pushed me on. So, you know, that you know, you know, they always have that Clint Eastwood right. Morricone intro. Tech. Well, when that finished, James Hetman just pushed me on, said, right, you've got to introduce us. So I said, and I've got it written down. In fact, you can see it on YouTube. You, we can hear it, not see it. Oh, okay, okay. So if you just if you go Metallica Ardshock Festival, and because some, someone's actually put a whole recording of the whole show, oh, sure. you hear me say, Headbangers, are you ready? The heaviest band in the world, all the way from San Francisco, Metallica. How was the crowd so, reaction? They 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 just they were they were just ready to see Metallica, but yeah, I think it was just a funny thing they did, you know, just push me out there. So it's just good fun, oh, and then great. you know it was good to keep in with them. And then 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 after about after the Master of Puppets album, I saw, I started getting into German thrash and stuff like Creator, Halloween, this band who I love, sort of like a they're sort of a maidenly, but they're slightly more I don't know poppy, and. Um, Celtic Frost, who are avant-garde and those sort of bands. So, and Slayer, you know, suddenly when that first Slayer, when that um, when that classic album came out in '86, Rain in Blood, I think it's still one of the best produced thrash albums of all time. Sure, yeah, and that's that's before they were part mm -hmm. of the the big four, right? You know, Metallica, Anthrax. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, 
Even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So so you, you mentioned Dave Mustaine. So there, there's been so much said about Metallica and Dave over the years. You know, do you what what are your memories of, of seeing Dave with them? did you pick up on like any bad energy or or is all I, I, that stuff overblown? It's funny you should say that because I only saw him once with them. I've seen obviously seen him in Megadeth. Of but course. When they were when they were on stage that night. And they were supporting, but they were still going flat out. It looked like they looked quite similar, him and Hetfield, when you look at them. Right. So it looked like, it, to me, it looked like two brothers that didn't really get on. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like one was getting in front of the other. And because they could both play that really good down picking, as I call it, rhythm, yeah. it just it just felt it was brilliant to look at. And I, yeah. I still thought it was a great, and you know, Kirk Hammett's obviously come along and done his thing, but. When you saw him and he- when you saw Hetfield and Mustaine together, they both had that long blonde hair. They both had a sort of similar look, right. and it just it just felt. I just felt. I wonder how long this is going to last, <laughs> without without actually knowing anything back then. Oh, for sure, yeah. <laughs> not but, knowing that to be, become one but, of the biggest. But having, yeah, but then again, having said that, when I met them that night, um, obviously I didn't. Kirk was obviously not in the band. The, the yeah. only ones I really talked to were. Hetfield and Mustaine. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry, Hetfield and Ulrich. Ulrich did most oh, okay, of the talking. Okay. Mustaine. Mustaine was off in a corner. He didn't really want to talk to anyone. And then, of course, I was talking to the the, the future bass player in another corner of the pub, of the, of the bar, the uh, which was Cliff. And I said, "What are you doing?" He said, "Just checking them out." <laughs> so I don't wow. know. I don't know if he. I don't know if I. This is the bit I don't know. Is if Cliff had already got wind of the fact they wanted him. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, could be. You you've kept in touch with them, right? Didn't they do some event where they brought you back out for? Yeah, cuz I got cuz in my job I got an agent and um she obviously, I, I quite often get musical when people can't get hold of me, people sort of look her up on like can see that I've got an agent. And I just she sent me an email saying oh Metallica are being in touch. They're being inducted to the Music Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio and want to fly you out. 
I said, oh, well, that sounds good. So I'll do it. I never been to Cleveland. And oh. then um, I get on the plane, and lo and behold, there's the Music for Nations guy, Jim Howard, who was their road manager. Uh, and then there's Martin Hooker, who was the label MF. And then there was people from Phonogram, which was the label they then went on to. And then there was about four or five others. Anyone who helped them in their career had been flown out to this event. So the night before they were being inducted, there was they had their own party. And then... Then I so everyone says, but you've got to change planes. They said the downside of that Cleveland is you've got to change planes at Chicago, which can be a bit tough to get through customs. Uh, and they don't really like European. I thought, oh, God. So anyway, I'm standing in this queue to get the connecting flight, which we're desperate for. And a businessman in a suit with a suitcase in front of me, this really officious looking guy, just took him to what he got taken to one side. I thought, fuck, if that means I've got no chance to get through because I had a t shirt on and everything. He said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I've actually come to see Metallica. He said, what? He said, what's happened with them? I said, oh, they're being inducted in Cleveland. He said, oh, I love that band. He stamped me and sent me straight through. He said, I couldn't <laughs> believe it. And you could see this business looking really pissed off because he'd been pushed to one side. I dread to think what was in his suitcase now. <laughs> but anyway, so we get to Cleveland, and then they have this party the night before. And Ross Halford, who's one of their famous, you know, he's a famous Metallica photographer now and a Kerrang photographer, had Jimmy Page with him. Because wow. um, he was he was in, he was inducting Jeff Beck because he's in more than one band gets inducted right, yep. that. So he had Jeff he, and so he turns up with Jimmy Page and says, "So no one can have a picture with Jimmy." I said, "Alvin, this is a private fucking dude. Just leave it alone for two <laughs> seconds." And then, of course, Metallica were there, and then Sylvie Simmons, who I knew from Kerrang a long, long time ago. It was great to catch up with all these old people, and then Lars and Co. And it was a good evening. And then the next night, it was right near. Um, uh, Cleveland Brown Stadium. Oh yeah, where the, where, it's a funny place. It's right on the late end of that lake, Lake yeah. Erie, the windiest lake I've ever seen. Oh and yeah, it was really cold there, really cold. But the actual induction was quite fun. We were up top, but we were on one of the tables. But I was sort of up high, and then well, I just went for a drink with Sylvia after that. And the funny thing is, the next day it was like it's like a ghost town on a Sunday there. And then I see Hetfield in the distance. It was like a scene from a spaghetti western. He had this bodyguard when he came up and we chatted for about 10 minutes in the sun. And then I flew back to London. But it, oh. and that was how I saw it. Yeah. And, that, and then I've seen them. I, I saw them recently at Download, um, okay. which I'd never been to since it, because I used to go when it was called Monsters of Rock. And I saw them at 85. And there's a famous story that I've told to a few people where I was on the side of the stage. And you know how people chuck things up on stage? Yeah. And, and some guy chucked a pear, which had gone into Cliff Burton's bass bin, came out again. Cliff took a bite of it and threw it back at the person that threw it. Who <laughs> caught it? I mean, you, couldn't, you couldn't make that stuff up. It was brilliant. brilliant. And I said to me, when did you last come up here? I said, not since it was Monsters of Rock. And he couldn't believe that. I said, I just don't. I think Monsters of Rock was good because you had really good bands in one yeah. day. Whereas downloads split into three days, and you get a different band headlining. And but Metallica were doing the Thursday and the Sunday, um, oh Friday and the Saturday, su Sunday, Saturday or Sunday. And I went the first night, and then I was backstage. And then I'm trying to get a track off their new album into my TV show, which I think I've now cleared because oh. yeah, because um, there's a track where there's a track where the policeman goes around to. Uh, this house where these kids are being noisy, and they got and there's a Metallica track off the new album playing loudly in the background. Which she pulls the plug and pulls it out. <laughs> so because I, I, I mentioned it to them, they said, "Oh well, this." And they, the, the guy that the legal guy that happened to be with Lars at the time said, "This is the man you need to talk to." So fingers oh. crossed, there might be a Metallica track in the Red King, okay. which will be coming out. It will be coming. It will be coming out next year. So keep an eye out for it. <laughs> so it was good to catch up with them. And, and I had a nice chat with Hetfield and then Kirk Hammett always likes to talk about horror movies, oh, sure. which is what he does. And and James thinks they've got into all these things like creating all these whiskey brands and smoking these fucking great big cigars now. He's, he's launched his own cigar now, I think. Yeah. So have you been, you've been a film editor like all this time going back like before Kerrang? Yeah. Oh. I started out as an so I started out as an assistant editor. I used to cut rock videos. You know, I cut Elton John's Nikita video. Oh, hello. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever dream of me? I cut the, the original Phantom of the Opera video. Okay. And I did another Elton one. 
And then I did some rock ones. I did Vow Wow, the Japanese band. Okay. Which had Neil were Murray in videos, it. Were these videos that would play on, like, I don't know, Did was was there a, a UK version of MTV? Did that air? Or no, they, some, no, there was uh, there's something called Music Box or something similar, but okay. some of them played on MTV. I mean, you know, Nikita played on MTV. Sure. Um, yeah. And then I did the Cherry Bombs, who are a bit like the, the sort of Stonesy band, sort of um, rock and roll, sort of Guns N' Roses-ish. And then I did Celtic Frost video, Cherry Orchards. Oh, okay. Nice. Which is when they went a bit commercial, which they didn't like doing, but they did. And then I managed to get myself in it holding a slate board. <laughs> <laughs> so what so was I've, working... So I've always, I've always loved music and film. Yeah, yeah. No, that's terrific. So so here's my question is, um, was working as a writer for a magazine, was that did that have to be a part-time gig for, for you guys? Or Yeah, it always, yeah. It always, was, it always was for me. I had yeah, to do yeah, it for yeah. fun, really. I mean, all the other writers I know do it full time and they love it. And so my style was always slightly different. I don't because I didn't really, I didn't really have time to do everything I wanted to do. So I, do, I just, you know, the whole thing with Inkarang, I used to write with these block capitals and spell everything with K's and cacophony. Yeah. And Jeff, Jeff Barton thought that was really funny. He said, "So why are you doing that?" I said, "Oh, it's," I said, "It was a bit of an accident because I actually put a C in once." And the C stuck, so I just replaced it with a K. And then one one time I, I was a bit drunk when I wrote a review, and I thought cacophony with big all in block capitals looks really good. Yeah. So and I thought it was a bit daft, but they, they sort of went with it. So I just thought it was a bit humor. And then Malcolm Dome, who you wanted to talk about, yeah. he created this culture page. So we started reviewing horror films. And instead of like, you know, Kerrang with four Ks, we give it chainsaw ratings. So if it had four chainsaws, it was really good. If it only had two chainsaws, it was rubbish. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then we had, and then there was another good column that sort of Malcolm edited called View from the Bar. Yeah. So it was everyone getting pissed at, you know, like Iron Maiden concerts and things like that. It was a great story that we put in there. I think, I can't remember if we ran it or not, but Motley Crue had just come over to join Iron Maiden on a tour and they'd been on another tour. And I knew they were up to no good. They had no trouble. Crusher Jewel, Steve Jewel, who did that Kerrang logo? came up to me and said, don't, don't, whatever you do, have any of the cocktails. I said, why? Because it Motley Crue just put laxative in all of them. Because, you know, they obviously pre-pour them. So I said, I, I'm, I said, thankfully, I'm sticking to my beer. Yeah. But anyway, a lot of Kerrang staff came in ill the next day. <laughs> well, that's the sort of things Motley Crue got up to. So, you know, we had stories like that in Kerrang all the time. And the, and the view from the bar was good because you always picked up tidbits from other bands and there's always good stories of people getting drunk and you know yeah. that's how rock and roll and it, it it was much more fun i'd say back in the 80s yeah you know you could actually and i loved you know like those albums behind you you get a new album you think you look at the cover you take the yeah. cellophane off now it's a cd but the plus side these days is with our cds you get a nice booklet with it yeah which gives you and we put rare photos in like from you know the band around the mixing desk and stuff like that but I've noticed more and more bands like Metallica reissuing all their albums on green splatter vinyl and then reissuing stuff on red vinyl and see-through vinyl. So vinyl's making its cover. And in fact, Metallica bought their own vinyl plant somewhere oh. in America, somewhere like Philadelphia or somewhere like that or Pennsylvania. Yeah. So they compress more and more vinyl. Sure. Yeah. I know. It's back. Yeah. It's huge. I have, I have a big collection myself I could show you. Uh, so we've been talking about some great stories and some great reasons to work in the print industry all these benefits you know meeting bands yeah. and talking about the music you love and sounds like all this fun Let, maybe can, we, can you talk about the flip side of it what was the biggest pain in the ass what was the biggest downside of working as a writer um so bands not turning up on time or bands not turning up at all or you do an interview with someone i remember i did an interview with um buck dharma once when the revolution by night came out and it was the worst interview I've ever done. It was, he wasn't in the mood. Yeah. He didn't really want anyone in there. And it was in a record, it was in a studio in San Francisco. And I thought, oh God. And when I, when I looked at the, when I played the take back, it was very short. And yeah. then it's weird. And I just thought, well, that's, you know, you get, it's where your one of your heroes ends up being one of the worst interviews you've ever done. And it was weird because when I, when I, I then talked to him, when I had to do the sleeve notes for the flat out, solo album he did I mean, he, he was fine and he said yeah i remember that day it was very odd i think we were both in an odd place <laughs> i think those were his words <laughs> oh yeah and then 
you know, but then sometimes you can get surprising ones. Like the few times I've interviewed Tom Werman, he really opened out. And I thought it would be quite, you know, people's old, you know, Nikki Six saying, oh, he fucked all her albums up and all this. He didn't, you know, it's just, yeah. Oh, he's yeah. a very, very, he's a very polished, good producer. And, you know, he took risks with bands like Molly Hatchet. And Blue Oyster Cult never used him normally because they used um, Sandy Perlman, their manager, and Murray Krugman produced a lot of their records. And then he produced the Mirrors album, which I think is brilliant. And there's some great songs on that album. And then, but, but you know, and when I told Butt, I said, look, he, think, he thought he let you sing, because Eric Bloom was the main singer normally in Blue Oyster mm-hmm. Cult, and Butt did sing a lot of the songs. But he told me I didn't think, but I thought Buck's voice was better for certain songs, and Eric got pissed off. <laughs> so I mean, you know, you get these sort of things happen. So you get surprise things, but you know, you get. I've done interviews where you get, you know, just boring Q and A answers. But when you get someone like Tom Warrior from Celtic Frost, I remember he picked me up in his car. It was we, me and this Ray Palmer, who's the photographer, sadly no longer with us. He picked. It was I was flown out to Switzerland for the day just to do this interview with Celtic Prospect, because we had another magazine called Mega Metal Kerrang. They were offshoot ones. Oh, wow. It was extra Kerrang. And Mega Metal Kerrang meant you could do longer pieces because it was specifically about the heavier bands. So he said, really go to town on it. So now he picks me up, he picks me and Ray up in this trans, you know, Pontiac Trans Am. And he says, do you mind if I play Frank Sinatra in the car? I thought, no, is this a trick question? <laughs> and I went, no, actually, I quite like Frank. So he put Frank on. And after about five minutes, he says, what do you think of Frank? I said, well, he's good, but I said, you know, Mel Torme's got a better voice, but he's not as popular because he wasn't as pretty. <laughs> so, it's like, so once you sort of broke the ice that way, and yeah. then he, then the weirdest thing is when we, it was in the bass player's house, who again is sadly no longer with us, uh, Martin Ayn, and then he said, we're going to go and do it in the dark room. So suddenly we're, it's in this hallway, and then suddenly you slide this panel back, and you just had to crawl into this crawl space, and then they lit this black candle, and on the on the wall, suddenly the, the room sort of illuminated enough to be able to see what was going on. There were four H.R. Giger original paintings, you know, the alien guy, yeah. who Tom obviously knew, where he left. If you look at their album of Megatheron, it's like Jesus Christ being held in the light of catapult. Right. And um, and then then once the room had illuminated, there was two black skulls and some candles, and that the and we're all sitting on sofas. And the interview began, and me and Ray just looked at it, and he lost all sense of time in this place, and we only just made the plane. <laughs> but it was one of the best interviews I've ever done <laughs> because oh, I was in such a it's it's because I was in such a weird setting. I mean, it's bizarre. Oh, but sure. I've always kept on up with Tom, and then I found out later that Tom actually helps run the Giga Museum. Oh, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Cool. So I mean, and then you know, bands like Halloween, Michael Vicat, the guitarist in Halloween. He phoned me up. They, they, their new, their new, their new album came out a couple of years ago, and they got. He he wrote the opening track called "Out for the Glory." And he said, "Savior, do you want to be? The, I need an English voice to do a bit of narration. Do you fancy doing it?" I says, "What have I got to do exactly?" He says, "Oh, well, I wake up in this dream, and you've got to be like a butler." So we sort of co-wrote this thing. To okay. He wrote most of us, and I just said it into my phone, <laughs> and then I said, "Well, I like this version." He goes, "Yeah, I think actually that version's the best," and they put it on the album. <laughs> <laughs> But oh, then that's they awesome. Sort of I got to look that up. Yeah, it's at, into glory, out for, out for the glory. The song's called. It's about. It's, it's like it's a very maiden type song. It's a slow build. It, again, it's a build builder. You see those ones with the guitars yeah. build and build. Wake up, wake up! Your head still may be fuzzy from intoxicating dreams, but it's the Empress Chariot Race Day. Come now, not a moment to waste. So little things like that, and then also on Tom's album when he was in Apollyon's Son, he said. Um, because he used to go, hey, hey, ooh, ooh, you know, he had all these death grunts. So I did some of these death grunts for him, and I kept going, is that all right? Is that all right? And he actually put it on the album. <laughs> <laughs> and that's called, and that's called R-U-M, the song which is short okay. for Are You Morbid? <laughs> so, okay. So I've appeared on a few albums. So. Oh, that's awesome, so, man. So, I mean, it's weird. It's like you, different things happen unexpectedly. You know, you yeah. turn up at a studio, and then suddenly they say, oh, do you fancy coming in and that sort of stuff. We talked earlier about Molly Hatchet, and this all started because I found your cover story about Molly Hatchet yeah. and Kerrang. Mm-hmm. So did Kerrang put your stuff on the cover fairly often, or was that a really coveted spot? No, it was a coveted spot to get a, to get, to get a front cover, 
normally meant that the record companies paid you to go to America, put you up in a hotel and things. So what happened was Epic Records said, we'll put Zay, we'll, we'll, we'll fly Zadie Russell and another journalist out. She was from Sounds. And, um, but you've got to guarantee us a cover. But then Ross Alvin found out about it. So, oh, no, no, I can't, I can't make it. I can't. Anyway, so there was never any really good picture to put on. So we just, so they said, actually, we're going to make it even better. We're going to put the Confederate flag, you know, yeah. the famous thing. And that worked really well. But it was a good, good spread. You saw how many pages it was. Yes. <laughs> so to get a cover, normally, I mean, there was a, there's a very controversial cover when they put prints on the cover. Oh. And a lot of people, a lot of people got cross about it. That, but Prince was sort of rocky in some ways. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, totally with the guitar. He's, he's crazy good. Were, were there other uh, stories of yours that made the cover? Um, I can't think. Uh, I'd have to, my brain's fried. I'd, I'd oh, have for to sure. think. But, but uh, yeah, when in Mega Metal, um, I did a road feature. I did a road feature once with Metallica and Armored Saint. Okay. Oh, Armored Saint. Okay. Yeah, and that was an extra Kerrang. And then on that one, because Armand Saint was slightly bigger and Chrysalis Records said, right, I know you're doing Metallica as well, but Armand Saint go on the cover. Oh, wow. So, and, and both bands got on because Metallica have always, when, when um, uh, Jason Newsted left the band, they always tried to get Joey Vera, the bass player from Armand Saint, but he'd never leave Armand Saint because oh, he was loyal to the group. Right. And there was, even at one point, there was talk of John Bush being the lead singer in Metallica at some point. But that never happened either. So, I mean, yeah, no, I mean, no disrespect, but good. <laughs> no, I know, but it's just like, you know, and also there was a story once that uh, Lars was getting a bit big for his boots and Dave Lombardo was up to replace him. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't see that happening because Lars runs that band. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think so. So, I, I, I guess I just asked this because I wonder what it was like. Uh, in the writer's room uh, for, for maybe not just even Kerrang, but all the magazines you worked for, like back in the day, was there ever a competitive vibe or was it very good natured? Were you guys no, all no, buddies it, or it, what was that like? In, in Kerrang, there was, it was, everyone really seemed to get on and everyone would go over the pub and sometimes Crush or Jewel would have a bottle of Jack Daniels and be dancing on the table. Um, now and again, if there was a cross fan coming in, uh, I think someone said something bad about, I can't remember who it was, it's either Scorpions or or Guns N' Roses, and they were looking for someone. It's oh, not here, not here. So we, you know, people would cover for people if there was like a terrible thing about to happen. Oh, okay. But generally, every, every, and also they had a box that when you go and there's all these cassettes. So, you know, an, a, a writer who's not longer with us, he lives in LA now. Of course, he picked up the Queen's Right tape, and he helped launch their career. So wow. you know, it's just people. It, it was like being in the right place at the right time. Sometimes it's like there was another. Have you heard of Marillion? Yeah, yeah. That that's sort of genesis. Well, I I just saw them play the marquee once, supporting Girl, which is one of the guitarists from Def Leppard. Phil. Right. Yeah. So they and they they came on in these look like potato sacks with an eye on, and they they're the most bizarre. And Fish had the, the Scottish singer had this most amazing sort of stage presence. And I wasn't. I, I was a huge fan of prog rock, but as Never so much a Genesis. But I mean, I love. I'd like more ELP that side. People, but they were so different and original. I said, I've got to write about this lot, and I did. And then I met up with Fish, and he was really nice. And again, EMI picked them up, and they became. Oh, they're still going. And the, you know, it's again, it was just being in the right place at the right time. It, you know, it's just one of those things. I could normally tell straight away if I saw a band how if they were going to be good or not. Oh, for sure. So it's it's it's, it's a sort of sixth sense, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I totally get that. Because there were so many bands playing in London back then. It was like every time. So it's like pretty much because I was living in the central London, Nottingham, it was easy to get to all these different shows. It's like I remember seeing ACDC when they played the Red Cow, which is this pub in 76. Okay. And everyone, and they, and they, and Sounds Magazine made them do like a weekly resident night spot there. And because. They just moved to London, and they were staying in the Earl's Court area, which was just Australian people. So they were amongst their own, which is where okay. the Aussies live. So they made sure they played every pub in that circular area, and there's loads that they could play in. So you could see ACDC about four or five nights a week if you wanted to. Oh, man, what a dream. <laughs> in, in in like a hundred-seater. Hundred and then I remember meeting, was it? that's right, the day before he died, Bon Scott came into the marquee. 
And he always had this black long leather coat and he was so sort of nice. Ah, oh, mate, how you doing? Who wants yeah. a beer? And he'd just buy everyone beers. And he's such a good downworth guy. And then the next night, I heard he bloody died. And it was just so upsetting having seen him the night before in the Marquee Club. I mean, he wasn't singing that night, but he right, was just in there hanging out. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Was... So, okay, so I interviewed uh, Jesse Fink, who wrote a book about Bond Scott that really dives into Bond's last years and his last days. And, you yeah. know, I'm sure you've heard this. It, people call it a conspiracy theory. I don't know. But, like... <clears throat> The idea that some of Bond's lyrics were used eventually on Back in Black. Do you have any opinions yeah. on any of that stuff? I've, it's funny you mentioned that because I've heard similar stories. I can't remember. It's actually a, a well-known musician, but I won't name him. Yeah. Um, who said, oh, I've heard this story that Mutt Lang ha actually did have some demos oh, wow. of Bond singing, but nobody's ever confirmed it. Yeah. No, I'm sure he, even if he didn't do the singing, I'm sure he wrote some of the lyrics. It sure seems that way. Yeah, because yeah. I don't know, Back in Black, I, I mean, Back in Black could have been written by the band because it's obviously looking back at him. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the year before that, when Highway to Hell came out, that's when I think they were at their peak, not, yeah. not Back in Black. And I saw on the high. I saw the highway to hell. So I saw them at the Oakland Auditorium. Oh, and it, they they were just and they had a record signing up in R Mill Valley or something. It's one of those suburbs yeah. up in the hills. And they they signed. They were in there all afternoon signing, and you could chat to them. There was easy going, and you could just see they were all at, all at one. And then they played a huge concert at Wembley with the Who. And the Who were headlining, obviously. Okay. But you had a funny bill. Because I remember Daughtry asking me once, he said, who, who do you think we should get on the bill? I said, well, try and get Lois to cut. So we've already tried their touring. So they had the Stranglers on there. Niels Lofgren going up and down on his phone. <laughs> and ACDC AC came on in the middle of the afternoon. But Wembley Stadium, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of Wembley Stadium in London. Yeah. It is big. Yeah. And, uh, and so you had this bit right in the middle where, and uh, Bond got on Angus's shoulders and walked all the way around the. I mean, all the way around the stadium. I mean, it took like fifteen minutes. I think it was Bad Boy Boogie. They were. <laughs> that sounds about but right. I oh, man. And I've okay, seen, well, talking you know, about seen... here. Let me let, talking about ACDC. So I have, I have this book, and I wanted to ask you. This is uh, uh, Kerrang's ACDC files uh, that was put together oh, yeah. by Malcolm, your your old. Uh, colleague oh. Al, uh, Malcolm Dome who who sadly yeah, passed yeah. away a couple of years ago. Uh oh. could you tell me a little bit about uh the Malcolm that you knew were you guys friends did you work on Yeah yeah very, together? very what much was he like? so. Yeah. Well I first met Malcolm I think well he was working for Record Mirror which was almost like a pop magazine and I, we both started around the same time at uh, Kerrang but he was like an encyclopedia I mean, he just, you, you could ask about a certain band playing a certain place. He'd tell you the venue, he'd tell you the song list, he'd tell you everything. And then he became more regular on Kerrang. And then because he's so so fast and he's such a sort of, he was an encyclopedia, he, he got onto the news pages and then he would always find out things before anyone else. He, he If there was a scoop, Malcolm was the first one there and he knew about it ahead of everyone else. And he had very good contacts. And then... He got in. He got to know sort of good PRs, good press people, and then he be, he began to work. He, he sometimes he delegate stuff, so he began to know what bands I like, what bands they said. Say, I want you to review this, or I want you to review that. And then he didn't really drink much in the early days. In fact, he didn't drink at all when I first knew him. And we we're on a trip to see it was Metallica in Paris. And then I just passed him, every, there was, you know, people had vodka. I just passed him and said, all right, then. So he had a pit, and I, he, well, then that's when he changed. <laughs> and Malcolm always liked to drink. And then there's this place called the Crowbar, which sadly isn't, it got lost in lockdown, oh. where it was a brilliant rock bar. And, you know, you get people like Dave Grohl turning up there because they like to drink. And he, Lady Gaga loved it in there. She's a metalhead. <laughs> I oh, never yeah. knew that. Yeah, and... Um, but and Lars again, then again. But Malcolm lived in there, absolutely lived in there. If he if you needed to look for him, that's where you'd find him. And he also did this uh, a, a radio. He did quite a few radio shows, so he was like a total encyclopedia. Then he left and went to Raw magazine, 
Um, and then he came back, and then, um, and then, then he, he then when how, then Derek Oliver decided to start up a new magazine because there wasn't a decent one. So Rob Candy came along. So you had Howard Johnson, who was another Kerrang writer, a regular one, and Malcolm was the main main page editor on it. Right. So he would phone me up and say, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. And then Malcolm, that, that's what he became. And then it, the minute an album, because he, he was head of the album review, so bang, I was always getting two or three albums an issue to do. So he, I, he was a sad loss. And when he died, sadly, I think the drink had got to, well, not partly that, but I just don't think he looked after himself properly enough. He's too many, too many hours in bars. But that's the, you know, he lived, breathed, and, you know, sleep. He slept rock and roll. He didn't really sleep. Rock and roll was in his veins 24 hours a day. Absolutely. But it's, it's I still think of him every day, really. Oh, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's great to hear. He seemed like a cool guy. I appreciate you telling me about him. So yeah, no, no. can you tell me what, what, what brought your time to Kerrang! to an end? When, when, when did you stop oh, yeah. writing for them? And what was, what, why did that come to an end? Right. Uh, two reasons. Um, the film career sort of took off quite a bit more. Okay. And I found less time. And I was also getting bored with the music. I, you know, I, I hated grunge. Absolutely. I liked Soundgarden, maybe, but okay. I just never got on with grunge. And I hated this thing called new metal. Oh. Was, there's, there's nothing new about it. Oh. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. okay. anyway. So this is like the late 90s? Yeah. Okay. And early 2000s. So, I, and also, I just got a bit disillusioned with it. I didn't think there were any decent new bands. And the bands that were coming out sounded like all the bands I liked, but not as good. Um, so it was, I'd say, in the, from 2000, I, mean, I used to do the old thing for Kerrang, but I suppose I left it properly about 97, okay. 98. And then the film stuff took off more. And then it, it was the Metallica thing that got me back into it. Oh. And then one, and, and then, then Malcolm started... Then the, oh, that's right. Then Classic Rock, which was another of – there was a magazine called Classic Rock, right? Yep. Then there was, like, another one came out called Classic Rock Presents AOR. Oh, okay. So it's like, So Jeff phoned me up and said, look, Xavier, do you want to try doing – Malcolm has suggested he'd like you to do some stuff at AOR. So this would be about 2008, 2007. So I started doing stuff for that, and I sort of slowly got back into it, and then they said – Oh, well, we've got this other page in there that goes online. You can do things like whatever you want. So I did, I, so I did the Metallica story about the phone box. And then I did a big, long Richie Rano interview about Stars, the band Stars, S-T-A-R-Z. Okay. Do you remember them? They're, they're on the same label as Kiss, and they had an album called Coliseum Rock. Oh, okay, should, yeah. I think, so I think I've, heard, and, I've heard of that album, yeah. And Fire Lace, and they did a fantastic song called Pull the Plug, which was very topical at the time about a girl on a on a heart machine and oh, um, so i did that and then then that slowly built up and then i became quite regular on classic rock presents aor and then okay. that was around the time that um uh rock candy started up oh, gotcha. so then I've, I've got back into it again so it's funny <laughs> yeah. but it was a period it was just a period where i thought there's nothing exciting happening musically Yet now I'm listening. I've written some bands that I've really got into recently. Have you heard of a band called Arch Enemy? No, no, no. I'm right, not. you should check them out. They've got this singer called Alicia White Glutz who sings in a death metal voice, but she can also sing in a normal voice. But the the uh, check out their videos, um, The Watcher. So it's okay. Arch Enemy, two separate words, and you you just won't believe what you hear comes out of her mouth. And and another one, Eye of the Storm. And Deceiver, if you check out those three videos, you, you'll just shake your head in total disbelief. <laughs> okay. They're one of these bands. They're sort of they're one, a couple of from ones from I think ones from England. They're a couple of fin, you know, they're sort of European. And I think she's Canadian, but amazing singer. And then this other band called Conquer Divide. Have you heard of them? All girl band. Oh uh, no, I, I haven't heard of, them, but that sounds cool. Right. Which, which, well, check out their video, Welcome to Paradise. It is okay. good. It's like watching a horror film, but they're, they're brilliant in it. <laughs> and the Grim Reaper's in the video, by the way. Oh, excellent. So there are some new good things coming up. But I, yeah. I find these bands by accident in YouTube because yeah. YouTube sort of knows the music you like, and then you start scrolling down, and these yeah. other bands come up. I thought, right. well, they look interesting. 
and the arch enemy are just like and, and they, you know they headline all those big metal festivals in europe so but I, I think when you check out those you think actually there is some good stuff out there at the minute oh absolutely. The, wait, so i mean you know a friend of mine who i'm working with at the minute the director i'm with he's a big he knows um cory taylor very well okay so he's a big slipknot fan slipknot, so he showed right, me a yep. video of them the other day and i thought well they look all right but yeah. it's just but musically i just i just thought it was a bit I don't know. I couldn't really get around it. Oh no, I I totally agree with you about uh, that late '90s, the new metal. <laughs> that and I was a teenager when that stuff was super popular, and it it just never <laughs> connected with me. That's but why it, I've always it, liked but, this. But it has the cheek, yeah. But it has the cheek to call itself new metal, but it's not really new, is it? Right. <laughs> a lot it of it isn't even re- metal. It should, it should be called rehash metal. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Oh man! Oh, hey, listen. I appreciate these stories. It's been a lot of fun. But for my for my last question, because we're we're going to keep it yeah, to Kerrang. My last question for you about Kerrang is when you look back on your writing career of all the interviews and articles you've written, and you know um, all these pieces that you've had published in Kerrang, or or maybe some of the the other magazines. What well, are some of the projects that you remember that you're most proud of? Well, actually, one of them we haven't talked about is I. Mark Putterford was a brilliant writer. He sadly died um, about 20 years ago. He, he wrote a very good book on Phil Lynott. And he phoned me up one day and said, look, I've been approached to do a Metallica book, but I don't know much about them. Would you like doing it with me? So we did that as a joint thing. Um, oh, okay. And, it, and it's on Omnibus Press. So that was quite, it was actually, and it was unofficial. So we, we could pretty much say what we wanted on it. So there's quite a few stories in there that are a bit close to the knuckle, but I never got sued by the band. <laughs> when 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 it's was called, that published? It's called that. It was about ninety four, ninety three. It's called Metallica: A Visual Story. Okay, I'll, I'll send you a link to it. Yeah. Well, you know, you can still get it. And then I suppose the Celtic Frost one, the Molly Hatchet. You know, and all the, and I, in Extra Kerrang, I did the huge, huge, which everyone loved, and everyone keeps commenting on it even to this day. I did a huge in-depth journey piece on all their albums and all the all the ones you can't get because I because I got to know them when I went out to see in, in San Francisco a lot and they invited me to um, a 49ers playoff game. Oh, so okay, I, okay. So I said, right. so I said, because they had a box there. It was Herbie Herbert, the manager. So, so I said, so what time do I get there? He said. Oh, we've got to get there at eight thirty in the morning. I said, "Hang on a minute, it doesn't start till two. I said, "No, there's a thing called a tailgate." Right. Said, all right. Yep. So you get down there, and there's Steve Perry. They're all there, and there's burgers going and beer going, and, and um, some guy from Fox News came up to me and said, "So who are you?" I told them, and they said, "So what's the score going to be?" I said, "I think it's going to be. I think they're playing the Giants or the Bears." And I said, "I think it's going to be twenty-one nil to San Francisco." They said, "Where'd you get the nil from?" I think you call it zip. I said, <laughs> "Anyway." Lo and behold, I was the one that got it closest. I think it was 23. I was two points out. Oh, okay. and, Herbie Herbert, and Herbie Herbert, the manager, sent me this really nice letter saying, we couldn't believe your knowledge of American football. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, of course, by the time I had to go in the game, I was so tanked up with beer and food. It was just like... And then, of course, in those days, you didn't have mobiles or things. You had to watch on someone's little portable telly that was sitting in front of you. And I, and I didn't realise about all these endless commercial breaks. I said, I didn't realise this game was going to last four hours. But it was great because the band were there and you're sitting with them. And they're all – actually, Neil Sean's a really nice guy, a very down-to-earth guy. And so that, that was a very memorable – so it's that side of rock and roll that's also quite nice when you actually get to meet some of these bands and they're really friendly and they're nice. and um, it's the same. I did a I did a photo once with Nick Jones from Foreigner, he, okay. and he was one of the most down yeah, really nice guy, easy to talk to. And then I remember seeing the other Mick Jones in the Clash. Um, Shoot, okay. And uh, th- yeah, and this was at, this was at the opening of a snuff rock musical, which was a piss take on punk. And he was in the bar, and I just said to him, "I like the new Foreigner album, Mick." He says, "You're not the first person to say that." <laughs> <laughs> and he said, and he actually turned around to me and said, "I actually like Mick Jones." <laughs> <laughs> So it's you know it's the, you, you, there's there's some fun you have fun times as well which is good, and then you know standing on the mixing desk with certain bands and things like that's nice. And I also got to know Brian Adams quite well. Oh wow! So and then and, you know he's he's told me lots of stories. And whenever you know he lives in Chelsea and I live in you know, Hampstead, you know in you know Clapham nearby him. Um, and he he's he's one of the most. I met him at a day on the Green once. I think it was a it wasn't the one it wasn't the Sabbath one. It was another one. 
Um, and he, he was like quite low down on the bill at that point. It was just before Reckless came out. And he said, he came up because he, he picked up my accent. He said, oh, I'm going to go out and watch one of the bands. Do you want to come? I said, well, people will be all over you. He said, no, no, watch this. Put his pass away. We went out. We're right in the middle. One person came up to him. Nobody else had a clue who he was. <laughs> and that, that's, it's great when they can do that. And then obviously when he got bigger, when he got bigger, I think, I can't remember if it was me or someone else, but he used to take, he used to go on the underground train wherever he was staying in New York to the, to the venue. And then oh, I remember when, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I remember he present, we had him present at one of the Kerrang Awards. He used to have these Kerrang Awards. So I said, so when, what time are you getting there? And he said, because I had to sort of look after him. They said, uh, he said, I'll get there. He said, I said, how are you getting there? You're going to get a car. I said, no, no, I'm coming on the train. It's tube, we call it. Mm-hmm. And he got out at Marble Arch and he said, do you know what beer they got in there? I said, well, I can find out. So I went down and had a look. He said, I said, there's no Guinness. And he wanted Guinness. So I said, well, I'll, I'll go and buy you some. So we had four cans. And then, of course, we go to go in. I have the Guinness. He's behind me. I said, we can't let you in. Who's that guy? I said, well, that's Brian Adams. I said, no, it isn't. And this is this is a security guard. <laughs> and I had to then go and get someone. I said, yes, that is Brian Adams. And that is his beer. And it's coming in. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's it's those sort of things, but it's like, you know, sometimes you have to you have to do all these things just to get a band a certain beer. That, you know, it's like the famous Van Halen story with the M and M's, right? Which you must have heard. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. With the yeah, yeah. So, writer, yeah, but that, right. all that stuff's honestly all that stuff's true. Though. <laughs> what you can um, and can't have in a rider. <laughs> yeah. Well, Xavier, I, I I could listen to these stories. The, the, these stories have yeah. been so much fun. I I really appreciate you coming on the show to tell me about this stuff because what I'm trying to do with my podcast now is in in my own way, not unlike what you did back at Kerrang with your articles and your yeah. interviews. But uh, hanging out today, you've been really good with your time. So so let's call it here. And uh, thank you so much for coming on, man. It's been great meeting. That's you. all right. If, if there's anything that you've forgotten or want to ask, you know, just email. Oh, yeah, will do. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this now, that means you did this part already. Thank you. There is an infinite amount of content out there, so you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend this show to family, friends, or anyone you know who's looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in Facebook groups, subreddits, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at PlayThatPodcast. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash PlayThatPodcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash C slash PlayThatRockNRoll. Lots of great material like photos and vlogs on all three platforms. As Play That Rock and Roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four, please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal. Not just because it affects the algorithm, but also because it gives me something I can point to when pitching this show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, better chance I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger, better things here. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.